Hello and welcome along to From Gay to Z, the podcast for parents who happen to be queer. Or queers who happen to be parents. I am your co-host, Stu Oakley, and with me is the fabulous Lottie Jeffs. Hi Stu, hello, it's great to be here. Now in this episode we have Paul Morgan Bentley joining us. Paul is Head of Investigations at The Times. Very, very impressive. Very, Um, very nice title. Yes, and he's written a brilliant book, which we both have in front of us, don't we, Stu? And it's called The Equal Parent. I love this cover. I'm going to tell him how much I love the cover. It's great, isn't it? In this book, he puts his sharp investigative prowess to work on the subject of emotional labour and childcare and the gendered roles that parents can end up playing. Yeah, so we're going to talk to Paul all about that because it's a subject that Lottie and I have often discussed and I Mm -hmm. loved this book. It's so interesting and I loved all the research that's gone into it as well. I mean, obviously as head of investigations at the time. I know, it's so thorough, isn't it? It's so thorough, but I love that and I love some of the the hard, hard fact Mm -hmm. um, that's been put into it. Um, And obviously in it he talks about his own relationship as a gay dad um via surrogacy in the book but how much more about how it relates to to the straits as it were um who i think very much needs to learn a lot from this book but if we're talking parenting equality today lottie tell us how does it work in the jeff's household with you (laughs) and your wonderful wife jenny I feel like on the whole it works really well and I don't know whether that is because we are two women or just because of our personalities and our natures and we just we just get on really well and we don't really argue. Um, I think we do have a pretty even division of labour and I think we're both super, super conscious of who has done what that week and kind of banks it and just personally thinks, oh, okay, you did X yesterday, so I'm going to do it today. We're just kind of both constantly keeping like a bit of a mental tally of who's done what and therefore what we might need to do the next day. It's quite unspoken. We certainly don't have like lists of chores. I mean, there's certain things that I just don't like doing, like (laughs) the garden. And I've made it, you know, I've been honest. I said from the very beginning, I'm not a gardener. I didn't grow up with a garden. I grew up in a flat. We had a window box. Really? That surprises me. I'm just not interested in gardening. I really don't enjoy it. Like people Mm. are like, oh, you know, being outside, getting your hands dirty, planting things. No, thank you. I don't want to touch dirty soil. Don't want to get my hands dirty. You're on the sunbed with a margarita. Absolutely. It's just so much work, especially like, okay, this is such a sidebar, but like planting vegetables, the amount of work that goes into planting vegetables to get like three courgettes or a tomato. It's like, wow, I can't ever imagine a world where I would enjoy all of that work. But I'm such a lockdown gardener. Oh, were you? I grew 25 chilli plants. Did you? 25. It looked like a forest of chilies. What did you do with them all? They just all shriveled up and died mostly. And then the plants just <laughs> went and John went, we're going to have to get rid of these now. And I was like, okay, we'll get rid of them. Um, yeah. So I feel like, you know, there's obviously areas where it's like, that's your thing. And what I'm trying to think, what's my thing? This is when I realised that actually Jenny does everything. And I'm like, what's my thing that I do? <laughs> I know. I think I definitely do more of the like... You sit around fanning about with podcasts. Yeah. I do more of the like <laughs> connecting with the school and the parents. Like I'm on the WhatsApp. I'm, you know, putting 
kids' birthday parties from her class in our diary, making sure we've got them presents and like admin, life admin, dealing with like the mortgage and boring stuff like that, booking things. Oh, you know what I'm really good at? Going to the post office and sending parcels, sending things back. Like Jenny will have something on her desk, like for months that needs to be posted and I'll just sometimes just leave it to see how long it will actually be before she posts it and then I'll be like shall I just do it and she's like yes please and then I just print off a label and you don't even need to go to the post office these days you can get them to come to you which is amazing you can get them collected I know I haven't tried that yet see I like the walk I like the walk to the post office I know and then you can have a nice chat with old people in the queue can't you if you go to the post office no no you don't like that. I avoid people. I don't like that. No, that's not my thing. Small talk with strangers is like my phobia. No, really? thank you very much. Aww. Yeah. No, 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 no. Okay, no. well, that's what I can give in our little power couple here, Stu. I can be the one that makes small talk with random old people in the street. But so tell me about you. I mean, obviously, I know what's been going on with you, but I feel like this is maybe a good time in our podcasting journey for you to tell the listeners about the crazy old time that you've had of it recently. (laughs) Yeah, if you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen that we've been through a bit of an up and down period in the Oakley household lately. But it's throughout the whole thing, we've just tried to be uber, uber positive. In short, because I won't drone on, because it can, I can drone on. And you know what, as well, I'm so sick of telling the story as well. I love, like, as another sidebar, I love friends showing that they care and asking how people are and what's going on. But you know, when you like, you feel like you're just saying this, you like become a parrot and you're just saying the same thing over and over again. But in short, listener, um, my husband, uh, how do I do it in short? Basically, he had a spine infection and pneumonia at the same time. We don't know which came first or which prompted the other potentially. Um, And it just meant that he's been he was bedridden for quite a number of weeks he was in hospital for a number of weeks um he still has limited mobility i mean the fact i pushed him as i say i wheeled him i wheeled him down the pub yesterday which was lovely but um words i never thought i would be saying this early on in our relationship and yeah so it's just been a challenge and i think the one thing it has shown well the one thing it has thrown up is i've less so now which is interesting with Paul joining us later as well is I've feel there was a point where I felt like I'd become a single parent not emotionally because he was there and obviously he's compass mentis and he's fine he's able to help but physically I became a physical single parent so doing everything everything for the kids everything for the house everything for my work and then also on top of that being a carer for him as well because he was very limited in what he could do and he's much better now in terms of what he can do for himself but still quite limited um and it was a real shock to the system but why I mentioned the Paul thing which I found really interesting reading his book is the whole notion of how when you're the primary caregiver regardless of your gender or sexuality or anything, it opens something up in your brain that kind of gives you that sense of, you know, the one that wakes up in the night, the one that is the one doing everything. And when John started to get better and was moving about a bit more and was maybe able to help make the cereal one morning or maybe able to do something, it threw me through a loop. 
which I've discussed with him since, but there was a point where I suddenly I felt really not useless, but I, it was almost like back off. This is my turf. And I didn't quite understand how I, like, it was a really odd sensation. Maybe like you had had to assert so much control over your situation in order to get through it that it was then really challenging to like relinquish that control again because totally. it was like almost like your coping mechanism. And listener, can I just say, Stu has told you like the abridged, abridged, <laughs> abridged version of this story. I don't want to Can I say, Stu? Yeah. No, but what he hasn't mentioned, okay, is that his husband was in hospital. He was single parenting three kids all under the age of eight and worrying about his husband. Then Stu gets appendicitis and has to get rushed into hospital himself, where he then has an operation on the floor above his husband. Then before he goes in for the operation, he gets told he has COVID. Amid (laughs) all of this, Stu, you somehow adopt two puppies. (laughs) Yes. It's your son. It's your youngest son's fifth birthday party. You're in hospital about to have your appendix out. John's in hospital on the floor above you. You've like, you like mastermind this amazing, um, children's party for like 30 children from your bed with like text messaging all of these people that stood in for you and helped like you've been through the most outrageously awful time and you've just made it sound like John's been in hospital for (laughs) a little bit and you're doing all right well I don't want to I don't want to become that violin but I've always been that type of person I don't want to be that oh woe is me so I just you know it and things are positive he's getting better now we're like we're going away like it's you know, and there is an end point. But yeah, you're right. It has been pretty full on. Yeah. <laughs> Although the time in hospital was wonderful, really. Because when the benefit. You were in hospital. Well, yeah, when I was in hospital, because I had the benefit of having COVID. I say benefit because I wasn't really suffering from it, but it meant I got a private room. Oh, nice. And I got a private room. I had you know, they were giving me a bit of Oromorph to help with the pain from, you know, my my surgery. And I had Real Housewives on my laptop for two days. Perfect. Babe, don't worry about me. I had an ensuite bathroom. I was <laughs> I was fine. It was it was it was a wonderful moment. Oh. And to be honest, though, it was tough doing everything with NHS at the moment because you read all the news reports about ambulances and queues. And I mean, we were in an ambulance. We were in an ambulance for eight hours in a car park full of other ambulances filled with other patients before oh we even got into A&E and then spent another, I think it was 10 hours in A&E after that. So See, hideous. It was the worst time to go into hospital. But we're, we're, we are fine. We are smiling. We are podcasting. We have a book. Like, it's fine. It's all good. But it it is interesting in terms of talking about like emotional labor and balancing parenting, because it's like when one thing goes off, like I notice it in our parenting relationship, like if say there's a school strike and the schools are closed or our daughter's ill one day, like I find it really hard to readjust to the spontaneous change of routine Mm. because I really like my routine and I like knowing what's happening. And then, or if, you know, my wife has to go away for work or whatever, it's kind of challenging to like recalibrate your roles and what you're doing and that kind of thing. So it's an ongoing negotiation, isn't it? Parenting is routine. That's what you have to do. Kids respond to routine. You respond to routine and you have to, Mm -hmm. that's the only way you can get through it. And actually, you know, you say, oh God, he was managing three kids and a puppy and and John. And I was like, yeah, but that was really stressful for a while, but I just got into a routine with it Mm. and it just became a routine. And like anything in life, I was like, okay, this is my routine. It's fine. I can deal with it. 
So then it was, like I say, when John started being more capable again, I was like, oh, no, you're throwing my routine off. I don't like this, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then something that I wanted to talk to you about, and maybe we can mention this with Paul as well. I don't know if you find it with straight parent friends that like one of them, and it is normally the mother, let's face it, mm. takes the lead with parenting stuff from the very, very beginning, like early days and then you know there's a time when they're both mucking in they're both they've got a newborn baby they're both trying to kind of be as involved as each other you know these are like liberal open-minded feminist men you know woke young millennial people but then I've noticed with my straight friends that the man slowly over time stops feeling so confident and stops knowing how to do things themselves Mm. and then where I notice it goes wrong is when they then have to ask where is the bibs where is the dummy like all of those things because they it stops being within their area of control and then when you start having to ask you sort of stop trying and then that's where it all seems to go wrong for me and like then you see the mum correcting the dad for like when they do do things like doing it wrong like Mm. bathing the baby and then being like oh no don't hold them like that do this rather than just letting them do it and letting them get it wrong like finding out for themselves yeah so they then think oh I can't do this I don't know how to do this I don't do this as well as my partner and then that sets the tone for then the whole like relationship it's just a whole cycle right it's just a whole vicious cycle of how society just pins it on motherhood all the time and whether that's you know through media whether that's through like you say mums themselves a lot of the time and you know whether it's memes or gifts or everything which is so geared towards women as a gender being the the primary caregivers Mm. and all these things I'm seeing on Instagram I've had to like I don't know how my algorithm thinks I'm like a straight mum but she keeps feeding me all of these like funny videos of like men being useless and like women being like you know what it's like when you go out and your husband doesn't know how to put the baby's bed and i just like you're bringing this on yourself lady yes because paul actually talks about this in the book and uh, and he is there hello paul has joined us oh hello paul paul your ears must have been burning as we were literally just talking about you and the book and before we do a proper introduction and say hello i was just saying that i love Catherine cho's um quote in your book where she says oh i have friends who say oh he doesn't know where anything is and he doesn't know where the diapers are where the clothes are or what to feed for dinner and i love this next bit well he should and why doesn't he <laughs> which i just I love that kind of response to I love that quote as well. And I love Catherine Cho. She's absolutely brilliant. And I love speaking to her for the book because she's so no-nonsense about this stuff. And she'll be like, do not say going to work is harder than being a parent. Going on the commute is easier. It's an easier day. And she's so no-nonsense about it. I love it. It's so true, though. Like, commuting, it was that when I went back to work, I felt so, like, it was, it was like heaven. I spent, I mean, at the time I was an hour and a half commute away from work. So it was a long commute, but I was like, 
oh my God, I had a birth. I didn't, I just didn't. And it was, it was, it was that feeling of not having any baby stuff attached to you. Do you know what? There was a line in the book where I wrote the commute had become the highlight of my week. And my husband didn't have many notes before the final audition was ready. But one of them was, was can you please just change that to a highlight of your week and not the <laughs> highlight of your week? So I did make that change. Oh, Paul, it's such a brilliant book. And thank you for writing it. It's so needed. And I wondered if you could just start by maybe telling us like a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write the book. Yes, of course. So I am Paul Morgan Bentley and I am an investigative journalist at The Times. I usually don't write about things like parenting. It's kind of much more newsy, my day job. But my husband and I became parents. Our son, Solly, is now almost three years old. It's interesting becoming a parent as a gay couple. And I think beforehand, we had all these ideas about what that experience would be like. And actually, to our faces anyway, we haven't experienced a load of homophobia. It would be misleading to say that it's this huge struggle every day. Generally, at nursery with our friends, we're treated, we feel like everyone else. There are obviously exceptions to that, but generally we've had a really good experience. But something that massively struck us straight away, even before we had our son, was that so little is often expected of men, men generally, gay or otherwise. And we were being praised for ridiculous basic things. And it's some it's a theme that continued. And because that felt like such an experience that kind of slapped us in the face, we, we kept looking out for it. And eventually we discussed it. And I thought, I think there's a book in this. I want to look into this properly. Why in an age where we talk about equality and often that focuses on work and rightly women being seen as equal at work and earning as much and working as hard as men. Why does no one really talk about what happens at home? And why is the expectation not just socially, but throughout institutions, nurseries, hospitals, workplaces, you know, all these different institutions, the expectation is that women do more at home and that if men do more, then they should be massively praised. But this is just expected of women. And you talk about institutions there. I mean, I love the beginning of the book where, you know, you launch into the fact about the NHS and <laughs> the actual guidance that they kind of give to dads, as which I, I, I would say I'm shocked, but there have been many things throughout the course of Lottie and I's own kind of investigations into queer parenting that have, have, have not shocked us. But um, but have you got that there, actually, the actual extract? Yeah. Could you read it for us, Paul? Yeah, yeah, of course I could read it. I should say that, you know, I love the NHS and we've relied on it and it's brilliant in so many ways. Mm -hmm. But it's a real example of how institutions are so far behind and lots of dads do do loads at home, even if they're not equal yet and they should be dads are doing a lot more than they used to be but these institutions like the nhs massively need to catch up mm -hmm. in my opinion and through my experience so yeah i can yes, read that please. if you want should i do it now yeah go for it it is close to 3 a.m and i can feel my son's weight on my chest after a milk feed his ears are glowing with the light from my phone i should take him to his cot but he's sleeping and i don't dare i'm also transfixed by what i've just read it's a hospital website's page for new fathers, and expectations could not be lower. In a bizarre opening, it warns men that having a baby might make them cry. Watching your baby come into the world can be the most incredible experience, it states. Many new parents experience very strong emotions. Some cry. Don't worry, this is natural. The website goes on to tell fathers that after the birth, they'll be able to, in quotes, go home and get some much-needed rest. But it also cautions that they might be expected to pitch in and help to keep their new baby alive and well in the future, but only occasionally and if no other family members are around. 
You may find that relatives and friends are able to help in the early days so that the baby's mother can rest and feed the baby, it states. However, you may live far from relatives and your partner may only have you to help, so it's a good idea to have a week or so off work if you can. Under some further suggestions it offers, you could look after the baby so that the baby's mum can get a good rest each day. I think of my relationship with my son. These moments after his night feeds, holding his hand as he moans in his cot, trying to help him learn to settle himself to sleep, desperately fanning his forehead and dousing it with wet wipes during a high fever, kissing his cheeks, bouncy like bow buns, until his giggles go from screeches to hiccups, and panicking when hives spread across his stomach in the bath. I'm far from a perfect father, but it is impossible to relate to the caricature 1950s dad that the health service website speaks to. I'm sure that many of the men in my life who have children and their partners would feel the same. Oh, just such a brilliant opening to a book, Paul. Like, mm-hmm. it really, really shocked me. And do you know, is, is this still the case? Is it Has somebody been in and, and, like, changed the copy on the website since you wrote this book? Do you know what? Partly because of my job, and I'm used to going to institutions for right-of-reply comments before publication, I did that with this book. And they, I went to the specific hospital, I went to NHS England, and I just got ignored. No one got back to me. Wow. Um, and last time I checked, it was still there. Okay. But I should also say that it is it is a particularly ridiculous example, that idea that, you know, if, if the mum uh, doesn't have anyone else in the world, basically, around to help her, you as the dad might have to do an occasional bit of babysitting. Might need to step in. <laughs> There's so much wrong with that advice on so many levels, isn't there? Like, I can't even begin to get into it of, like, how wrong it is. But there, there are examples, I'm sure you will have heard or will have experienced different examples. Now, every every vaccination appointment we went to, and this particularly happens when you have a very young baby, I think, but every appointment, the nurses would say something like, wow, a dad, we never see dads, that's brilliant. <laughs> or at one one of them said, oh, you're going to be stronger, so better at holding him down oh, than the mum. Oh, no. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is wrong with people? And also, like, as someone that does, like, advertising copywriting every now and then uh, for a living, like, how did this copy get approved on the website? Like, who is reading it and thinking, yep, that sounds about right still in 2023? Let's, yep, no changes there, no notes. Are you applying to, to copyright for the NHS lot? I am, actually. This is, a <laughs> this is available out. for work if I am. If anybody <laughs> wants me to redo their website, I mean, yes. There are so many systemic factors involved in the gendered inequality of parenting, aren't there? I mean, not least like uh, the patriarchy. But maybe you could start by telling us about some of the other societal factors that are holding us back from achieving this true equity. Right. The way I decided to structure the book is it starts from, I mean, that that extract was the beginning of the introduction, but it, it starts at the first night of my son's life and talks about hospital births and how so often dads are sent home and they're treated like visitors and then goes through night waking and the science behind that and these kind of cliches that society so many different aspects of society uh, kind of reinforce about mothers having a unique power to respond to babies or feeling more urgency or bonding in a more intense way than men and actually how the science is actually very good on this now and basically completely disproves that the truth is it starts on that first night and i wanted to start on that first night because I think it sums up a lot. There's obvious biological reasons that most mothers 
are there more at the beginning, they have been pregnant, they have given birth, and some choose and can breastfeed. However, really the first night, as soon as that baby is born, what is happening is there's this reinforcing that that baby is solely your responsibility or primarily your responsibility. And actually there's a real opportunity there to say, your body is no longer dictating the responsibility here. Now that you've given birth to the baby, we can share this. It's so true. And and I think as an adoptive father, sometimes you think, well, maybe I'm just not, I just don't have that bond. I, it, I, I, I don't believe that now, but in the early days of when we adopted, it was that thing of, well, I can never, I can never replace that motherly bond or I can never, because I think that's how we're made to feel. Yeah. And so I found it, that's one of the things I found so fascinating with reading that, you know, that hard fact, that research that you include in the book about the fact that, you know, it's all to do with as humans, our bodies and our minds react to when we are giving primary care to something and then we're reacting exactly the same way as you would be if you had biologically had a child and I so I found that absolutely fascinating and I'm sure you know you're going to have a huge response to it as well I felt I mean I'm my husband and I had our son through surrogacy in the UK and I am not genetically related to my son Uh, the you know through fertility treatment it was my husband's sperm and these are the questions if you go through surrogacy that lots of gay dads can struggle with, you know, mm. and, and we got asked that a lot. Who's the real dad? You know, who's the dad? We're both the dads. Who's the real dad? And people are kind of obsessed with genetics. And actually the science is amazing on this. And I mean, we all know this through our experiences, either of adoption or if you're a non-genetic parent, that you feel you can't, you know, I can't imagine a bond being any stronger than between me and my son. It feels completely impossible. And I look back to those thoughts before having him, the kind of, oh, I wonder if this will be different because it's not my genes. And I kind of laugh. I, you know, mm. barely have time to think about stuff like that. It's just, it's constant. You know how busy it is and everything and how strong the love is. But actually the science, and not to kind of get too involved, but when I looked into the science, it's really, really conclusive. There's no doubt it's, when scientists are now scanning parents' brains to see how they respond, they're they're taking hormonal tests, blood tests to see how parents respond. Women, when they are pregnant and give birth, they get surges of the kind of bonding hormone. And actually they weren't expecting to find this, but when they measured dad's levels of that same hormone, they caught up really quickly. If they were involved dads who were there actually looking after the baby, holding the baby, your levels of of those hormones rise to exactly the same level. The bond is as strong as long as you actually do it. If you're an absent dad who's never there, you're not going to have that same bonding. No. The other thing that scientists have looked at now is that question of who wakes up first at night. And typically in in, uh, heterosexual couples, uh, the mum tends to, and they wanted to answer the question of why that happens. And actually, it's quite a basic thing. It's a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is all to do with anxiety and stress. And when you're really stressed, that's really activated. And they found that in straight couples, typically, the mum's amygdala was much bigger after having a baby than the dad's, about four times. But then, as more gay male couples have started having children through surrogacy, they decided to take a big sample of them and they found that whoever the primary caregiver was, their brains had changed in the same ways that mums usually do. 
And that sounds amazing that their brains have changed, but actually it's a really simple thing. And it's all to do with responsibility. If you're giving a speech tomorrow or you've got an exam tomorrow, you can barely sleep because you're so stressed about it because you know no one else is going to do that thing apart from you. Mm. And if you're a dad who's in bed and the whole of society and your upbringing and the NHS and everyone else is saying that you are the helper, you sleep better because ultimately the person next to you is going to get up. And the mum's lying in bed thinking, yes, I've got my partner here, but really I need to do this. So she's not going to sleep as well. And she's going to respond when the baby cries. And actually it was something, I don't know if you guys can can relate to this, but we split parental leave and it, it was ridiculous how true this was. I woke up first for the first six months, pretty much, of our son's life. And I used to, I was furious with Robin, my husband, about this. He'd be like, how are you snoring? You're <laughs> screaming. What? And also thinking to myself, what's happened to me? Like, why am I responding like mums do? Like, what's going on in my body? But I went back to work and Robin took over parental leave. And I swear it was almost instant that Robin was like, why aren't you waking up? He's been screaming for ages. Wow. And it genuinely happened. So, Paul, talk to me about this concept of being maternal. Is being maternal a myth or at least a social construct? I don't think it's a myth. I think it's a myth that it's only women that can be maternal. It's kind of the word Mm. has everything to do with motherhood Mm. and being a woman because that's how you know, how things have developed over time. But there's nothing in the science that shows that men can't be as maternal, whatever that means, as women can be. Our bodies change. And and actually, there's a brilliant scientist called Sarah Blafahardi uh, from the US, really respected anthropologist. And she talks about parents through adoption. And when she's written about it in the past, she talks about mothers through adoption and how she calls them biological mothers because their bodies change, your brain changes, your hormones change. If if scientists measure your blood, your hormones change. It's not to do with whose sperm or whose egg was used. When it comes to that bond and you, Stu, she would say, absolutely, you're a biological father to your your children. That's so interesting. Yes, you're not a genetic father to your children, same as me. Um, but we are biological parents. That's what she believes because our bodies literally change. Mm, that's so interesting. Mind blown. That's I love that. Because I've always hated that phrase, I'm the non-biological mother. It's like, for a start, it sounds like a washing powder. And then also, <laughs> like, it's sort of defining yourself by what you're not, isn't it? Which is just really, it doesn't sit well as an involved parent. And Jean's... And Genes are obviously important for basic traits. Like mm. if your genetic mother or father is, they're both really tall, you're going to be taller. If You know, mm-hmm. things like that. Genes are important. Or if if you think it's important that, I don't know, IQ, there's probably science that shows genes have importance when it comes to that. But actually the really fundamental things, what is parenting about? It's about what you do. Anyone, if your body allows you to, can be a genetic parent. You can donate or you can, you know, that is not the hard bit. The parenting is showing up. That's what it's about. So this idea of being relegated as a parent because it didn't happen to be your sperm or your egg. And sorry, Lottie, I should have included you in that. I didn't realize that you weren't genetically linked to your kids as well, but exactly the same. She'd say you were absolutely their biological mother. Do you think that queer parents are totally exempt from gendered expectations? Do you think it does creep in? Do you think it creeps in in more interesting ways or different ways? What's your kind of take on that? 
I have loved how we have felt totally freed in lots of ways from typical gendered expectations when it's come to our own personal decisions. So, you know, right, we're having a baby, we've got parental leave coming up, split it down the middle. Why should one of us be sacrificing our career in the way that the other one isn't? Why should one of us exclusively get the opportunity to spend this time with our new child? You know, we felt that we could be really practical about it without guilt, without all those expectations that come with it. And that goes through actually to the nursery years that you always hear, particularly mothers saying things like, well, there's no point going back to work because my salary didn't cover the nursery fees. But why is only her salary considered? Even if she earns less, you should be considering everyone's potential in all different kinds of ways, what's best for the family. And, you know, if you don't go back to work, then if you want to in five years time, it's going to be much harder. And I got praised um, so a few months ago, I picked up a prescription from my son at the pharmacy and this, um, the lady who was, who was surfing really not, she meant, I'm sure she meant really well. Um, but she said, oh, it's so good to see dads doing things like this. Oh, for God's sake. I, was like, I mean, I'm picking up <laughs> I, a prescription. I don't know who I'm more this is real angry with here. Like, because if you look at it from her point of view, she probably doesn't see that many dads coming in because I think the the purpose of the book, Paul, right, is that dads can be equal parents in terms of the biology of how things all work and everything and the care. But that is, as we know, is fundamentally not happening across the board. So, you know, the the pharmacist probably was quite surprised to see it. And that's really sad as well that that still is the case. But hopefully your book in some way will change some of that as well. And it plays into the idea that men's time is more valuable. Oh, uh, yeah. So yeah. you're taking time out of your business. Do you not have an important meeting? You know, that kind of mm. idea. Whereas imagine a mum being praised for that. Yeah. And when you're off on parental leave as well, did you... Because one thing I really struggled with, and still do, is the the very gendered terminology around everything and language that's used as well. So whether that's mum and baby groups... You know, my husband and I went, we took our youngest to a mummy and baby yoga group, it was called, and it was just so awkward. And the instructor didn't try in any way to make it any less awkward. We never went again because we just felt so uncomfortable. And it's, you see that all the time, you know, like mummy cookbooks or mummy this or mummy that. And it's it's just it could be really alienating. Did you find that at all? Did you? <laughs> My um, husband bought some baby wipes at one point that all the branding was to do with mamas, and I try not. The truth is, I try not to be massively sensitive to stuff like that because I kind of can't be bothered. Because if you start, it's like one of these things I get annoyed about enough in the world. If I decided to care about that more, then I would just get really annoyed about it. It's just always there, yeah. Lottie, what do you think about this as a woman? I just totally agree. I don't think it benefits anyone because I don't think, I don't think it takes anything from you as a mother for the word parent to be used. It doesn't diminish your experience of motherhood. You are included in the word parent. All the word parent does is include fathers as well and non-binary parents and people that just don't like the kind of commodification of mumhood it's just so much more inclusive uh, 
Um, Paul, we don't have much time left with you, but I'd really like to ask just finally for some advice to new parents who are maybe listening to this podcast, queer or straight parents-to-be. How do you start off from a place of equality in your parenting relationship? And then a secondary question, what about people who have been parents for a while and whose roles have become quite entrenched in this not very equal way? Is it too late to break out of them and reassess them and make changes? So I think through writing this book and our experience, the most important thing that we have learned is that you have to do things independently. So I have some friends where where in heterosexual couples where the man might take a bit of parental leave now more than he would have, but he takes it with the mother. And you're always going to be a helper if you do that, because you're there and you're helping out and maybe you're changing a lot of nappies, but you're you need to, I think, you need to do things completely by yourself where you are ultimately responsible. So you pack the bag when you go out so that you have the experience of really realizing that you didn't take any nappies with and what the hell am I going to do? And now I'm never going to do that again. The bag is my responsibility. And that's why I think independent parental leave is really important. But even if you haven't done that to answer your second question, I don't think there's ever a time, you know, it doesn't have to be set forever. I think... You know, we have really seen how the things we took primary responsibility for have shaped us as parents. So some people might think equal parenting means you do everything exactly the same. And our experience anyway is that that is not the case. And that we've, while we can do everything and we do everything when we're alone, we have to kind of step up and down at different times. So I had a very big, busy week at work last week. Robin did probably 80% of the parenting last week. And I'll step up at other times. He went, he was in New York for work a few months ago and I had to do pretty much everything. But that period of parental leave, I did the first six months and still now I get obsessed with sleep. Our son's not napping anymore, but when he was, I was always obsessed with, oh no, the nap's going to be too late. It's going to ruin this night's sleep. And because I think that was my responsibility, first six months, you're thinking about sleep all the time. When Robin took over, it was weaning and Robin just completely took charge of that. I got involved a bit, but he was deciding how he was going to do it, whether baby led or mushing up and and how to mix things. And still now, Robin gets much more stressed than I do about what's he eating. Uh, he does the food shop every week. He Food has become his primary responsibility. And so I think it is really important that you're not a helper, but that you have maybe a day at the weekend or certain times when you're doing that one-on-one parenting and you are completely in, in control and responsible. That's such good advice. I think that is fantastic, fantastic advice. So, Paul, your book is out on the 2nd of March, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it's available from all good bookshops. So please, listener, go and buy it. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Paul. It's been fascinating. I could talk to you all day about this subject. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for having me on. I've loved it. Thanks, Paul. I love this cover as well. I was so happy when it came through. Yeah, I bet you were. I love it. Also, just because baby grows are really cute. <laughs> Wow. Mind blown. I'm very happy that I can now say I am the biological parent to my little ones. I know, Because I just I think that, that was such a nice, like, and just makes total sense. I loved it. I loved it, loved it, loved it. Yeah. That book, I can't recommend enough, is so interesting. Any cultural chit-chat you want to share this week, Lot? Anything that's floated your boat? Um... Well, of course, the Grammys. I mean, I don't know when you're listening to this episode, listener. You might be listening to it 
six months from now, a year from now, three months from now, whatever. This is probably old news. And it wasn't the most drama-filled Grammys that we've ever had. But no, what I wanted to talk about that is relevant to our little podcast here was such a sweet moment when um, Randy Carlyle, her wife and her kids introduced her at the Grammys and it was the sweetest thing. And I'm going to play you now the clip of it because I just think this is such a win for queer parents everywhere. So, Millions of you watching tonight fell in love with the next performer four years ago when she took the Grammy stage for the first time and delivered one of the most iconic performances in Grammy history. I was lucky enough to marry her more than a decade ago, so I was way ahead of you. It means the world to me to stand here tonight with our beautiful daughters by my side and introduce, in our humble opinion, one of the greatest, most authentic artists and human beings on the planet. Here to rock our faces off with Broken Horses from her Grammy-nominated album, In These Silent Days, my wife and their mama, Brandy Carla! How sweet is that? Oh my God, that's so adorable. Thank you for listening today. This has been From Gay to Z with me, Stu, and her, Lottie. And if you like this episode, please do share it with all of your friends, family, colleagues, people on the street, the bus driver, and maybe the shopkeeper. Anyone you want. Put it on the school WhatsApp group, maybe? Um, But seriously, a personal recommendation for me is so valuable and it really does help us reach new listeners. And if you do hit rate and review in your podcast player, we will be eternally grateful. And don't forget, if you want to get in touch with a problem or indeed any comment about the show, do email us at lottieandstew at gmail.com. That's Lottie spelled L-O-T-T-E, the word and, and then stew at gmail.com. And please also open up your social medias. Go to Instagram and follow us at From Gay to Z. Lots of love. Bye bye. -bye.